I came across uh, some letters written by children uh, who were running away from their family, uh, young children, and I found their handwritten notes uh, for their parents to read when they ran away quite interesting. Meg, age eight, uh, writes this as she ran away. Dear mom and dad, I ran away because I'm really mad. P.S. I might come back. Young Dave writes this. By the time you read this, I might be gone. If you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you turn right from our house. I love you. Interesting to write a runaway note and tell them where you're going to be. Sarah writes, Mom, I ran away not because you're mean or anything. I only wanted to meet the Spice Girls. The motivations of why we leave. Someone else writes, Mom, I'm going to run away tomorrow at 9.30 p.m. When you and Dad say goodnight before I sleep, be sure to say goodbye forever. Emily, P.S., I will also be packing tonight. Not much of a surprise when they actually run away. Another one writes, Dear Mom and Dad, we ran away because we think you and Dad need a break from us. We will always love you both. Don't worry about us as we have food. Please don't look for us. We'll come home tomorrow at 7 a.m. We promise. Love, Christy, Teresa, Matthew, and Samantha. P.S. If you parents can run away from us, we can as well. People run away. On a more serious note, people run away from the Lord spiritually. They do so for many reasons. Many of them are sad. Many of them feel insignificant. They feel that no one cares for them. Or perhaps they did something wrong and they are so embarrassed. People run away because they are offended. There is a wide variety of reasons why people run away. So it was the case for the Jewish people in the time of Zechariah. They had run away from the Lord for a wide variety of reasons. They thought that God no longer cared about them. They were disillusioned. They were depressed that the city that was so beautiful in their eyes before they come back to was now in ruin. They thought that God did not care for them. And so God had to correct their thinking. And he sent to them the prophet Zechariah to remind them that they can come back to him at any time. God would extend to them an invitation to those who have walked away, run away. And it is the same invitation he invites all of us who have left him and who have wandered away. We begin a new series in the book of Zechariah this morning. It is entitled, Return to Me, Responding to God's Invitation for Intimate Fellowship. As we look into this book, I pray that many of us who no longer walk with him, who don't walk intimately with him, will be compelled to return to him. Those who have wandered away will course correct and come back to the Father, Heavenly Father, who loves them so. And as we are compelled and cultivated and challenged to return to him, what is the type of heart we are to cultivate? What is the heart preparation for how we are to return to him? That is a theme we will be looking at in our study these next few weeks. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 1, as we begin our study in this book. 
Zechariah, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. It follows the book of Haggai and is before the book of Malachi. Once you turn to Zechariah, would you please put a bookmark there or your Bible marker as we will be in this book for the next few weeks. As you turn to this book, uh, let me give you a bit of a background. Zechariah, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were both prophets and priests. And so he had a dual role. Zechariah is what we call a post-exilic prophet. He ministered to the Jewish people who had returned from captivity in Babylon. This was what we call the restoration community. And therefore, his contemporary would be the prophet Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exilic prophets. Zechariah's ministry centered on motivating the Jews to finish rebuilding the temple. But more importantly, to rededicate their lives back to the true God, Yahweh, so that he could bless them. Zechariah was ministering to a group of disillusioned, disjointed people. They were indifferent to their walk with God. They no longer cared. And so Zechariah would encourage them, give them hope by pointing to the wonders of the coming Messiah. He will remind them that the all-powerful God is still at work, and He is sovereign over nations and over history. And so we begin our study in Zechariah chapter 1, as I read from verses 1 to 3. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah begins this book by telling the Jewish people, that God is very angry with their forefathers. God was very angry with the generation before the captivity. And that anger, that righteous anger, stemmed from the people's sins. Their rebellion, open rebellion, against the precepts of God and how they were to live. And so God sent the powerful Babylonians to exile them as punishment for 70 years. But instead, in spite of God's righteous anger... God is also gracious and he is merciful. In fact, Zechariah's own name reminds us that God is merciful. Zechariah means God remembers. And what does he remember? God remembered his covenants and his promises to his people. In spite of God's rightful anger, God still remembers that he has made a promise to the people of Israel to establish them, to make them a great nation. And so God tells them and challenges them in verse 3, return to me. Would you highlight that verse? Would you underline that verse? Circle that verse? That is the theme verse of this entire book. Return to me, and I will return to you. It is an invitation of the Almighty God for them to reestablish a covenanted relationship with Him. They do not have to be like their forefathers. They could walk a different path. They could return back to Him. Similarly, our loving Father, Heavenly Father, also invites us to be in intimate fellowship with Him. 
He invites those who have wandered away, some not too far, some very far. And he invites us to return to him, and he will return to us. And we know the wonderful story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. It is a theme that stretches across scriptures. The loving father waits expectantly for his wayward children to return. In verses 4 to 6, Zechariah takes the people on a walk down memory lane. He reminds them of a few key points in their history they need to know. Verse 4 to 6, look with me. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to his ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. God asks the people to remember Remember what happened to people who do not listen to God, who do not walk in His ways like their forefathers. They are judged, they become nothing. Those who desire to live their lives apart from God, those who desire to live with worldly success in mind, those who have placed in their life a desire to do it their own way, will become nothing at the end. The Bible says, where are they? Where are they? They are no more. But the word of God, verse 6, God's character, God's principles, His ways are forever. They never change. Timeless truths that we can cling on to. God is just. He is righteous. And slowly the exilic people recognize this. Finally, they were woken to their senses. They woke up and they realized we need to turn from our evil ways. We need to start the process of repentance and coming back to God. And that's why they said at verse 6, so he has dealt with us. The encouragement of Zechariah to these post-exilic people was to continue the process of repentance Continue returning to God. His invitation is wide open. He wants to walk in intimate fellowship with you. He wants you to be a covenanted people with Him. Return to me, and I will return to you. To encourage the people to return to Him, God gives Zechariah a series of eight night visions. One each night, each with a message to encourage His people to persevere in the work of rebuilding the temple, outward action, but more importantly, because of their inward motivation. Return to me. These night visions will give hope, will challenge the people for why they are to return to him. And we look at the first one this morning. Look at verse 7 and 8. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. 
and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, or brown, or speckled, and white. In this first vision of eight, Zechariah sees a rider on a red horse. Behind the rider on the red horse are horses of many colors with riders on them as well. The rider on the red horse is standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Now, what does this mean? These riders of many colored horses, as we'll find out later, evidently represented the angelic host. They had been scouring, had been searching, had been scouting throughout the world to report back the conditions of the world. Why is the man on the red horse in a grove of myrtle trees? Myrtle trees are evergreen trees. They are always green. They are used in the Feast of the Tabernacles to picture future messianic blessings as we see in the book of Nehemiah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41 and 55. Myrtle trees symbolically represent that God would bring about his blessings to the nation of Israel. But this man on the red horse among the myrtle trees is in a ravine, perhaps picturing the depressed situation in which they are now in. In this hollow, in this ravine, in this pit, they found great despair. But there's myrtle trees there, which represents the fact that in the midst of their disillusionment, in the midst of their depression, there are blessings. God will bring about his messianic promises because the world is in need of it. Verse 9. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Verse 10. And the man who stood among the myrtle tree answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the entire earth. Zechariah asks the most obvious question. Who do these writers represent and what does it all mean? The response is that these are angelic messengers. God has sent his angels to collect information about what is happening around the world to inform him. He has sent his billions of angels to see what is happening in this world and to report back. Now, God is omniscient. God knows everything that is happening in every part of this world. In fact, the entire universe. But God wants to reassure the people of Israel and to reassure us as well that he really does know what is happening. God is watching over the world. He has sent his hosts to report back to him. And isn't that wonderful? I wonder sometimes if we are discouraged, wondering, does God know what is happening here in the Philippines? My friends, God knows what is happening in this country. God knows the graft and corruption that pervades our culture. God knows the terrible traffic situation in Metro Manila. God, it has been reported to him that that intersection coming in and out of Grace Village and Sergeant Rivera is always backed up. He knows, and he knows your frustrations. It has been reported to him what is happening in this village. 
it has been reported to him what is happening in your lives. God knows the predicament of all people from the rich and the famous to the lowly squatters sitting outside our village. And what an amazing reassurance to people who are disillusioned. God promises to watch over us. And he does so very actively by sending his angelic hosts to report back to him everything that is happening. It's a simple truth, but we often don't really recognize it. And so we wonder, is he really involved in this world and in our lives? There is a phenomenon today uh, where people will wear things like Fitbit, if you know what I'm talking about, or they will have in their phones or uh, other gadgets uh, the ability to count and track the number of steps you walk each day. I don't carry one because I don't walk that much. But imagine before the days of this technology, if you wanted to track how many steps you walked a day, you had to count them. Can you imagine? One, two, three. Probably by about 300, you would have given up. Either that or people will think you're crazy as you counted out numbers as you walked. What did people do before the days of gadgets such as this? Well, there was an ancient Fitbit. There was an ancient step counter. Do you know what, where it's found in the Bible? There is one. It's found in the book of Job. Job chapter 31, verse 4. I love this verse. Job chapter 31, verse 4. Does God not see my ways and count all my steps? Isn't that a great verse? Our Heavenly Father doesn't just concern Himself with the big things of our life. He is watching us. He is counting our steps. He is saying to me, Stephen, you need to walk a lot more. He knows from the day we were born, when we could not yet walk, He knows the number of steps. He could give it to you at an instant how many steps we've taken. He knows today how many steps you have taken and will be taking. He counts all of my steps. Job chapter 34, verse 21. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is not a step that you take in this life that God does not see. God is watching over us. Don't you forget. He cares about every step you take. The Israelites knew about their depressed situation. They came back to a city and a country in ruin. But what they did not realize that they had to be reminded of was the fact that God has sent his angels to watch over them. They were reporting to him what was happening. They, they thought that God had abandoned them, but God had not. What an amazing encouragement to them and an amazing truth we need to be reminded of. God watches over this world. Now, you may say, Pastor, thank you for reminding me. But does he really care about my plight? Does he, does he really care? More than 7 billion people on this earth. Does he care about me? Many of us feel that God has abandoned us. That he doesn't care about us through what we go through. God, why do you bless some, but you don't bless me? Why do you answer the prayers of people 
but you don't seem to answer my prayers. Why is this world so unfair that the people who take advantage of me seem to get away with it, but I, who, who do what is right, seem to be caught in this spiral? God, I don't think you care very much for me. While you may feel this way, the truth of the matter is God has not abandoned his people. God has sent out his writers to go to every corner of this world to watch over us and to get a report. And here is their report, verse 11. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. They report back to the man on the red horse. He is noted as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a very special angel. In fact, it is the pre-incarnate Christ. In theology, we call it the Christophany, the theophany. If you are interested in the study of angels, come and join our Wednesday evening step class where we talk about this and other things. This is Christ himself before he took on incarnate form when he came as a babe of Bethlehem. This is the angel of the Lord, and he is receiving the report from his writers. And they report back that the earth is resting quietly. And this is true. By 520 B.C., the Persian Empire, through Darius the Mede, was the greatest empire of that known world. It destroyed all of its enemies. Life was peaceful. All was well, except for the people of Israel. Life was not good. They were still subjugated. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? The man among the myrtle tree, the pre-incarnate Christ, asks the heavenly Father, the Lord of hosts, How long, Lord, do you plan on disciplining the people of Israel, disciplining Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? You've held them seven years in captivity, but now they're still under foreign dominion. Many things have yet to be rebuilt. How long? The second person of the Godhead is interceding on behalf of the people he loves. How much longer? It's a question that is asked, or we often ask ourselves. God, when will you show that you care? What about us? Don't leave us behind. The whole earth is at peace, but not me. I'm going through so much right now, God. I can barely make it. That's why I'm here this morning. I don't know where else to turn. Lord, I've really messed up my life. I, I've sinned so bad. I, I, I'm so far away. Will you still take me back? Lord, I, I've offended you, I know. So we wonder, will he still care? In verses 13 to 17... Gracious Heavenly Father will remind the people through the prophet Zechariah of two simple truths 
truths we both, we all know, but truths that profoundly affect and change the way we live our lives. To show us that He does care. To show us that He does love us. And whenever you doubt the love of God in your life, remember these two principles. Verse 13 to 15. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem, jealous for Jerusalem, and for Zion with a great jealousy, great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped but with evil intent. God tells the angel, proclaim these words. They are good words to Zechariah, verse 13. Words of assurance and security. God always gives us words of assurance when we begin to doubt. God is saying to them, I have never forgotten you. I've never forsaken you. I will deal with your enemies. The angel was instructed to tell Zechariah, proclaim God is a very jealous God, and He's jealous for you. Number one, if you're taking notes. God is jealous of us. If you ever doubt whether God cares for you or not, remember that God is jealous of us. Jealousy, when used in the context with God, doesn't refer to the selfish human jealousy we all know. But it refers to careful concern. He rightfully owns us. And therefore he will guard. Because he will not allow us to be in the hands of another. Remind the people. He tells the prophet Zechariah. I am jealous of them. As we go through great lengths to guard the things we are jealous of. That the things we consider ours, so also God, to a perfect extent, will He guard His people. He knows our plight. He watches over us. And He cares for each one of us because He is jealous of us. He died on the cross on our behalf so that He can say, you are mine. I'm reminded of the story of Mary. Mary had grown up knowing that she was different from the other children, and she hated that fact. She was born with a cleft palate and had to bear the jokes and the stares of cruel children who teased her nonstop about her misshaped lip, her crooked nose, and her garbled speech. With all the teasing, Mary grew up hating the fact that she was quote-unquote different. She was convinced that no one outside of her family could ever love her. Why would people love me? Until she entered the class of Mrs. Leonard. Mrs. Leonard had a warm smile, a round face, a shiny brown hair. While everyone in her class liked her, Mary came to love her teacher, Mrs. Leonard. This is in the 1950s, and in the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give their children, their students, an annual hearing test. However, in the case of Mary, in addition to her cleft palate, she was barely able to hear out of one ear. 
determined not to let the other children have another difference to point out, she would cheat on the test every year. The teacher would give the whisper test, which was when the students or child individually walked towards the front to the classroom door, turned sideways and closed one ear with a finger, and then would repeat what the teacher whispered into the student's ears. Mary would often turn her bad ear towards her teacher and pretended to cover up her good ear. She had memorized what the teachers would often say or would often ask them to repeat. Things like, the sky is blue. Or, what color are your shoes? But not on this day. Surely, God had put seven words into the mouth of Mrs. Leonard that changed Mary's life forever. When the whisper test came, Mary heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. And that changed her life. When you are at a point in your life where you wonder if there's still hope in this world, if you wonder if God is doing anything in your life that no one wants you because you have worked your way out of a job or perhaps you find yourself insignificant and the world has told you that and you begin to believe that and you wonder, does God care about me? Remember that as a Christian, you, my friends, are a child of God. And God doesn't simply whisper to you. He says it to you with clarity. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And not only that, he declares to the entire world, he declares over the dominion of the evil one, over the demonic realm, he declares, this is my child. You cannot touch him. You cannot touch her. It is a wonderment that we would ever question if God cares for us. He whispers into our ears. He declares to the world, you are my child. You are my child. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem had experienced much hostility. They had seen their city destroyed. But God promises in verse 16, I will mend you again. You may be broken, but I will mend you. I will show you compassion. The sovereign Lord promises to the people then that the temple would be rebuilt. The city would be a, a viable entity again. And there is pictured in verse 16 a surveyor's line that is a measuring tool. 
The book of Jeremiah chapter 31 reminds us that not only will God rebuild His city, He will expand it. He will make it so much better. And this will happen in the great millennium. Verse 17. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. God promises that His cities, the cities of Judah, would again flow, overflow with the benefits of prosperity. I will once again comfort my people. I will bless Jerusalem. This will happen in the future. How can one not read the prophetic books and not see the great implications for us today? You see, number two, God is saying to His people who perhaps may doubt whether He cares for them or loves them, I am a God who keeps my promises. Number two, God keeps His promises. Now, you may be skeptical. You say, people have given me promises only to break them. People have promised me things and then they die and then they forget it. Nothing's written down. God keeps His promises. In Joe Aldrich's book, When God Was Taken Captive, he tells the story of how he came and was greatly moved by a picture. In this picture was a picture of a house that had been burned down. All that was left was charred ashes. In front of this destroyed home stood an old grandfather-looking man dressed only in his underclothes because he ran out of the house. That was the only possession he had left. Everything was burned. And there next to him was a small boy clutching a pair of patched overalls. It was evident that this child is crying in the picture. A picture of sadness. A picture of grief. But beneath the picture are the words which the artist felt the old man was speaking to the boy. As Joe recounts, they were simple words. Yet they presented a profound theology and philosophy of life. The words of this old man to this crying boy was, Don't cry, child. God ain't dead. Don't cry, child. God ain't dead. Instead of a reminder of despair, everything being burned, it was a reminder of hope. God ain't dead. When I go through times of discouragement, disillusionment, when I wonder why God is so unfair and how come God is not at work, I need to plaster in my mental wall these words, God isn't dead. Because as long as God isn't dead and He is very much alive, then He is alone in control of this world. Do you believe in a God that is alive or He is dead? 
Because many of us live like God is dead. And so we mope around. We sulk. Knowing in our head that God is alive, but in the way we live, in our actions, that He is very much dead and He can't seem to do anything. The God we worship this morning is a God that is very much alive. He has conquered the grave. We serve a risen Savior. And if you acknowledge that, there is nothing to fear in this world. God keeps His promises. He isn't dead. He is very much alive. His riders go forth throughout the entire earth, not a one-time event. They are continually bringing Him reports of what is happening in your life and mine. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever man may say. Return to me, because I will return to you. We return because he's watching over the entire world, and he knows what is happening in your life. To show you that he cares, he wants you and me to remember that he is jealous for us. I am jealous, greatly jealous for you. For us to remember that he keeps his promises because he is still at work. He is not dead. We return to the loving embrace of a living Savior. May all those who have wandered away return back to him. Let's pray. It's good to be reminded of the truths of Scripture, truths we know in our head but have forgotten, and so we begin to question in our mind, do you still care? Help us, Lord, to recognize and remember that you died on the cross on our behalf. You're fiercely jealous of that which you claim as yours. And that your promise is to never leave nor forsake us, to always provide for us, to always give for us your very best. Will always be kept because of your unchanging character and your sovereignty in this world. And for that, we thank you. Prepare our hearts this morning as we come to a time of communion. May this time call us to attention in the areas of our life that need to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.